Hi, and welcome back to Tell Me More About That. I'm your host, Brianna Jacobson, and on this episode, our guest is Dr. Paul Miller-King, who has worked for several years in Native American communities and is currently opening up a private practice in Albuquerque, New Mexico. He has done original research and wrote a dissertation on eco-psychology. Here he is to tell us more about the how and why to his practice. Okay. Um, how and why and getting, so yeah, that's a long, it's a long story. So I'll try to get through that. So I graduated high school without a big plan. Um, didn't really know what I wanted to do. I tried college for a semester and it didn't go well. Um, so I went to California and I worked at a lumber yard for a while and I uh, signed up with the Marine Corps um thinking well this will be fun i have some friends who are in the marine corps and i can get some money for school so i did that um and that was in like 96 um and so i went to boot camp and i was in the marine corps and and i didn't particularly like it but it was good for me at the time in hindsight like i you know i made a living and i got a little more focus in my life anyway so when the time came for me to get out i got out and i went to michigan state um and i i my first major there was in uh calculus and then like civil engineering stuff and i i can't do math so i almost failed out of school but at the same time i was taking some political philosophy courses um, just like electives and I really liked those. So I changed my major to the social sciences and studied just basically took political philosophy classes the rest of the time um, and graduated and then realized like nobody's going to pay me to read old books. So I, um, I went to work. My, my stepbrother got me a job in Texas in like a big, you know, cubicle type building and and that was really terrible and like soul sucking so i quit that kind of abruptly and went to san diego again and helped my friend build cabinets for a while and then i found an ad in the paper in taos um and i, I grew up going to taos in new mexico when i was a kid and so i figured i would just go be a ski bum and i, I found an ad and they were hiring for like a teacher mentor at a boys ranch and it turned out to be like a treatment center for like a year-long treatment center with different phases for young men like 18 to 26 um and i really loved it and i met some people there that worked in wilderness in utah so i went to do that for eight months or right around eight months um and it was during that time i decided i wanted to be a therapist um and so I came back and went to work at that place again. And, and my girlfriend and I at the time then moved to Santa Fe and I worked at the Life Healing Center there in Santa Fe. Um, and then I enrolled at Southwestern and I got my degree, my master's in counseling there. And immediately after that, went to California Institute of Integral Studies um, for my doctorate in clinical psychology. And I studied a lot of different stuff there, but I kind of gravitated toward psychoanalysis and psychodynamic psychotherapy. Um, so I did a lot of training in that way. Um, and then came back to New Mexico 
And I worked at eight Northern Indian Pueblos for several years. And then I worked at the Mescalero Apache tribe for several years. Um, and then uh, Bernalillo Academy for a little while. Uh, and, and now I'm kind of doing private practice and working under contract with Cerna Solutions. So very linear is what you're saying. Was it linear? <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. But that's kind of um, a theme that I'm hearing here is hmm. most people in that I was a professional in the mental health field found it in this very nonlinear way and that almost enhances relationships to the field yeah and it's weird because I never I never thought of first of all I didn't really know like anything about this field most of my life I kind of stumbled into it um, and like my brief exposure I, I loved it right away um, but I think it also had a lot to do with like just my own you know my own struggles in life, my, the, the things that, that, you know, I was kind of dealing with for myself and that, that continues today. Like there's, I, I, it's not like you become a therapist and all your problems go away. Um, so like it just, it really intrigued me both in the sense of like, it's, it, it, it's a good vibe for lack of a better word. It's like a, it's a good place to be if you're open to that. And then it's, it, it just happened to be super interesting to me. Um, and the other part of it was like, you know, I get to help other people as best I can, you know? Um, so it's kind of a, it's very like, it's rewarding in ways other than financial, um, which I, I like, so. Yeah, and going uh, with that, how it's rewarding personally through your profession um, kind of segues into the next question that I love hearing people's answers to is where do you see uh, your personal responsibility and your professional responsibility in a field like ours? Yeah. Um, well, I think I'll, I'll talk about professional responsibility first and then I'll, I'll talk about personal. I think professionally, and, and this has a lot to do with just my, my training in psychoanalysis and sort of the way that I think about this work. And my responsibility there, ultimately, it, professionally, is to provide a separate place for my client. And by that, I mean, when they come to a session with me, they, they it, it's completely and radically different than anything else in their life. Um, and I think protecting that, creating that, protecting that, and facilitating that is, is my biggest professional responsibility. And I think mostly that has to do with, um, I mean, it goes back to Freud, really, like, and, and, and the analyst, I really study Lacan. It, it's, uh, it's a very, you can't like it's like a, a fish in water right the fish doesn't know they're in water when they're sub, like submerged in it but if they could have like a little bubble where they could survive like outside of the water then they can see the water you know um which is you know scary and empowering and all kinds of things but 
it's a separate place where people can not only like work on their troubles, but it's also a separate place where they can view the world from a very different angle and they can take that as far as they want, you know? Unfortunately, the mental health field is, you know, you look at the DSM and literally like every diagnosis requires there to be some functional impairment. And what they mean by that is, can you go to work, you know? Can you go slave away for money or, or are you unable to do that? Um, so a lot of people come to, to therapy because they are having those challenges. They want their life to be better, but sort of their, their end goal is to like go back into the water and be like all the other fish, you know? Um, so people can go that way. And, and I feel like keeping that separate space for them to do that. And, and if they can be happy doing that, great. But I think there is an opportunity to, to go uh, much further with that space. You know, not a lot of people take that opportunity, but I try, to, I try to keep that door open for them if they want. And professionally, I feel like that, that's my biggest responsibility. Um, it, personally, my responsibility, I think, is to... Um, survive <laughs> but also you know try to affect change in the areas that i feel like i'm able to do that um and that can look a lot of different ways that can look like you know participating in some kind of an action that can look like being a member of the dsa that can look like you know contributing financially when i can that can look like you know, being the one at a gathering or something to speak up if something not good or, or in my judgment, not healthy is going on and doing that hopefully in a way that's skillful and doesn't lead to just a complete rupture. Um, yeah, I mean, personally, I guess that, uh, I guess in the blending of the personal and the professional, I think too, and like, unfortunately, a lot of our profession is geared toward, you know, getting getting the fish back in the fishbowl, so to speak. Um, and I try to really advocate against that where I can. I, I've written about it. I, I tr when I talk to people, I try to, you know, point out the fact that, you know, mental health or health generally is defined by the systems we're in as, you know, get back to the mill or get, you know, get back to work. And, you know, it, when this first came around with Freud, like he never promised uh, happiness. He never promised, like, we're human beings. We're going to be anxious. We're going to be depressed. We're going to have good days. We're going to have bad ones. We're going to have conflictual relationships. It, you know, anyone selling you a bill of goods that they can just alleviate or make all that go away, I think is full of it. Because you, you know, if you didn't, if, if those things weren't part of your life, you wouldn't really be human in the full spectrum, right? Um, so like a lot of our field tends toward like promising this and having all these different like proliferations of exercises and techniques and modalities and on and on um in an attempt to do something to in an attempt to do the impossible really um 
and you know, people can fake it to a certain extent in my judgment, right? Maybe some people reach that enlightenment. I don't know, but I just don't know how realistic that is. Um, and so I try to advocate the opposite and, and say, you know what? It's okay to not feel good. It's okay to be depressed. It's okay to, to, to hate your life. It's okay to not be, you know, perfectly happy. Um, and then, you know, be responsible for that life then. Like, what are you going to do now? Like what you see the water for what it is. You see your life and, and your humanity for what it is. Like, can you love that? Can you create with that? Can you, uh, can you be fully in your life, you know, and, and, and affect change around you as best you can. So I think those, that's where it overlaps, I guess, to me. Yeah, it really does sound like a Venn diagram of sorts because what I'm hearing is a lot of awareness giving in both your professional and personal responsibilities. And then in your professional space, creating an environment where you could wake up to radical awareness and with that also comes this sort of um, reckoning with reality and knowing what you just woke up to and being aware of all the factors that may have gotten us to where we are. And then also being highly aware that we're still participating in that same structure, you know, these same systems. Um, yeah. And then as professionals, we're, we're operating within a system um, that's defined by a system, which can get pretty meta. You know, you mentioned the DSM and just the criteria itself, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so kind of how you've come to terms with, with, those, with holding both of those truths, knowing that you're operating within this system and waking up to its realities. Um, yeah. Can you speak a little to that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a there's a certainly a uh i mean uh, for lack of a better word i mean it's a, it's a game that that the system is a game that needs to be played for survival unfortunately and it's taxing and draining in a lot of ways um and i try to i try to play the game as well as i can um and and in doing so try to protect that other space right if that makes sense like you know you gotta you gotta put a dsm code in so that you can feed your family um i mean obviously people you know private pay and things like that which is a different scenario but you know if you're working for any agency or you're working for you know pay insurance payments you have to utilize the tools of the system um, and it doesn't mean just because you're utilizing them that you're not conscious and aware of what you're doing. Um, would it be nice to just completely throw all of that off? Absolutely. But there's, it's like, it's like any kind of, <laughs> it's like any kind of revolution really like there, there will be and has to be some kind of a tipping point at some point when everybody calls bullshit on this. And until that time, all we, we just survive, 
you know, and try to try to do the best we can in in the little enclaves we can create and find. Trying to prioritize mental health in in a society that doesn't. Yeah. Well, it's a society that does, but does it in a very unhealthy way. (laughs) (laughs) Does that, if that makes sense, right? Like, like I don't, the system as a whole doesn't care about mental health, really. They just care. Are you mentally healthy enough to go, you know, pound a nail into a board for pennies? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense. I guess it's more, um, the non-prioritization of wellness more so than mental health. We, we do have structures and standards around mental health. You're absolutely right about that. Um, and if those structures are sustainable is a whole nother conversation potentially. Right. Well, I mean, there's whole, (laughs) there's whole the sustainability question is huge and this is part of like when i talk about some of this stuff in other venues like one of the professionally like one of the like the primary system that i mean literally like government health agencies across the you know in britain and other other places have said only cbt is is authorized for use it's the only legitimate form of of therapy for mental health treatment and there's there's people and agencies and and active act, active groups perpetuating that here as well to make like one you know go good luck going to a major university and doing anything other than CBT you just aren't going to get in the door and in terms of sustainability like there's mountains and mountains and mountains of research evidence showing that CBT works while the person is in therapy. And literally within a couple of weeks, the relapse back to like the old patterns or old behaviors or whatever begins. And by six months, most of the group in the research study has completely like gone back. So is CBT, you, they need, like, you need to be perpetually in CBT? Um, or like, what? there's no sustainability, it's just a cycle. There's whole, mod- whole modalities that just talk, like right out loud will tell you like, what is it, solution focus, which I think has some good elements, but like so- solution focused therapy, it's pretty well known. Like people will go and they'll, they'll go for a little while and they'll feel better and they'll leave and they'll come back in a little while. And it's just like this ongoing thing. And there's a whole, ho- there's a whole bunch of research that shows, and I don't, I, you know, it's all good. I'm just, I, I may be a little defensive. So I'm going to kind of pose it this like opposite way, but, or, or in conflict in a way, and maybe it is, but, there's a whole bunch of research on psychodynamic psychotherapy that shows, you know, the treatment is yes, longer than a CBT treatment, but, and the, 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 the improvement is much less drastic. Like a person will start CBT and they'll make really big improvements in 10 or 12 weeks, if that long. Um, Psychodynamic psychotherapy goes on for, you know, six months to a year, but, 
and the, the improvement isn't that drastic. You can't measure it like really big at first, but what they show is, you know, three months, three years, six years out, there's, there's a constant improvement over time without having to return to therapy. So, you know, where is the, where is sustainability really? Right. And especially talking to you, who is a psychodynamic oriented therapist, that's trauma informed and solution based doesn't touch what's underneath. It's addressing the primary concern and it's brief. It's, you know, this whole modality is supposed to be brief and it's not getting at any past traumas, past experiences, nothing historical within the person. And um, for me, that approach, it's hard to look at it being, well, it's not trauma informed because it's not approaching that. The, the term evidence-based for me always makes me laugh because it's such a, a soft science that what I consider to be evident in practice may not be any one else's standards for it. Like you wrote a dissertation on eco-psychology and for me, that that's evidence-based, like that's founded in evidence. However, it looks much different than hard sciences. So when people want to put quantitative things on a very qualitative topic, um, then we get people pushing CBT and, and not wanting to listen to someone who has a multi-oriented approach, um, which yeah. just seems a little interesting to me. Yeah. No, it's a really good point. Like, I mean, pull, so think, tell me the ruler that will measure depression, right? Like, how do, you, how do you measure somebody's suffering or pain or happiness or whatever? I mean, and, and, and the, whole, the whole funny thing about it is they try to do exactly that. They try to say this person's depression dropped from here to here. Well, <laughs> based on what? you know, and not only that, but the, so there's no tool to measure those things, but also, I don't know, nobody really pays attention to this, but the models that they use, the statistical models they use for like psychology research, here's an interesting little historical fact. Like when they first started doing in the field of psychology, when they first started trying to do like this scientific statistical analysis of, you know, studies and things, the psychology department was near the agriculture department at this university. Um, and so they went over there and they were talking and they just borrowed the, the statistical models that they use to measure like crop yield. Like if you water X amount of times a day, will that increase the crop load? Yes or no, right? We, we use the exact same models in psychology today, like almost a hundred years later. And there's so like statistical modeling has gotten so much more advanced. And not only that, if you get into complexity theory, I took like a complexity class through the Santa Fe Institute. It was an online thing. They've, they've pretty much like, like more advanced physics and science and, and statistical stuff has pretty much chucked out all of that. There's like multiple axes on which you can measure things. And there's all kinds of like chaotic variables involved. So you take all of that together 
And then you add in the fact that you're dealing with the human psyche, like what exactly are you saying is evidence-based really? Like you're literally telling me like crop yield information. If you show up for a session 10 times in a row, will you get better or not? And it's like Freud, Freud acknowledged it from the get-go. One of his first books on psycho, uh, psychoanalysis, he talked about the transference cure. And, and pretty much everybody who comes to therapy for a short period of time, anywhere from three to 10 or 12 weeks, will have improvement. They will feel like they're doing better solely by the fact that they've taken some action. It's got nothing to do with actual improvement at all. And so they're doing these short-term CBT sessions that show improvement on some crappy, useless statistical modeling. And then they're putting it out to the world as this is the only evidence-based practice. And if you do anything else, you're completely wrong and unprofessional. And sometimes we won't pay you. So, yeah. <laughs> I got, I'm off my soapbox now, sorry. No, I, I love it. And for me, it brings up the question of ethics. If I was told that I can only conceptualize a client's progress by this equation and by using CBT, I feel like I would need to step down and say that's just unethical. That's, I mean, mm -hmm. but that really does bring up the huge question of how does one conceptualize progress? Yeah. Are you asking me that? I mean, do you have an answer for that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, so how, how, yeah. So progress, like, so it, as a clinician, it, it's hard for me to say, but what I can, what I would ultimately progress is measured at the end of an analysis or at the end of a therapy, when the client tells you something new, they've created something new. Um, what that looks like or, or how to define that. I don't know if that's possible, but you know, they do that themselves. It's a creative individual act um, that then, but when they do that, when they have that act, then they're driven almost to write that act in the world. And I say write, but I mean more like go out into the world and, and do that thing, right? Um, that would be one like really general way. I think from a session to session basis, I think it has a lot to do with, you know, you shut your mouth and you listen for quite a while and then you kind of get a sense of what's going on for the person. And then you think, all right, you know, this is a, this is a pattern or a loop that I'm noticing here. What could, why do I think it's happening? What, what would a possible intervention be that might let the, the discourse or the speech continue? And by that, I mean, as a client, I come in and I say a lot of things, right? Um, and eventually, as, a, as the observer, as the clinician, I start to notice like they're saying a lot of things, but it's pretty much the same thing just in different, I'm talking about the mailbox without really mentioning the mailbox, right? I'm talking about the trauma without really mentioning the trauma. So then as the clinician, I say, okay, here is the loop of the discourse, the speech. 
how can I intervene there in a way that's going to allow that loop to resolve and move on to the creation of more discourse or more speech? And so I go, I, I think about that for a little bit. I come up with what I think is a good intervention. I make that intervention and then I watch what happens. Does the loop change? Does the flavor or the character of the speech change? And then we go on like that for months and, and you know, occasionally longer than months, years potentially, until the person gets to a point where their speech is free and they can create new things on a dime. And at that point, they move on and they create those new things in the world. To me, that's progress. Yeah, I, I think it sounds like what I'm hearing is an integration process um, is kind of what we're tracking for in terms of progress. The awarenesses that occur and happen in session, that being integrated into speech, daily life, behaviors, et cetera, all the, all the meat and juicy things that make us human and also cause problems for us um, that may eventually lead us to seeking therapy is integrating that into our inner and outer world. Yeah. And then just tracking that is our job. Tracking it and trying to, trying to unknot it when it gets knotted. Does, if that makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. Or at least facilitate an unknotting process. Yeah. You try to, you know, snip here, cut there or whatever. And interventions are, I look at as, as scalpel-like in a way. Um, and, and you should be cautious in using them, just like you would a scalpel, right? Like you can't, you can't just willy, like here's what happens in a lot of treatments or a lot of like CBT or other types of therapy. The clinician comes in with an agenda and they have paperwork to hand out and they have information pamphlets and they have uh, workbooks and different techniques of breathing and fucking endless proliferation of stuff, all of which is meant to reduce the clinician's anxiety. It does nothing for the client. The client might feel like, oh, great, this is really cool that we're really doing stuff because I got handouts, which they rarely do. But like they go in there with like a battering ram. There's no precision. It's like, oh, you want to talk to me? You're going to do these anxiety papers. I don't care about it. I don't want to hear about it. I don't know what it's about. Just do these breathing exercises and you'll feel better. And, and it's like, no, that, that doesn't deal with the situation. Like, and so it's very, very precise and it's very, very gentle. And it, it, it can cut very, very deeply, you know? So yeah, that's my thought on that. And it provides those things, those tools provide um, the space to sort of structure that we're all used to. I mean, if I get homework from my therapist, this is reenacting a structure I've known since, since I was five. Um, yeah. getting, getting instruction on what to do physically uh, takes it out of this really meta kind of gray cloudy area of why am I even in therapy? What's therapy going to do for me? What is a counselor going to help me with that I can't figure out myself? These are things that I hear people say 
all the time in terms of the stigma around therapy. What is it going to do for me? And getting tangible things or somatic things feels, you know, like a little less abstract and a little more approachable in some ways for both the client and the counselor. Mm -hmm. um, but going into those, those dark spaces and sitting in silence and with the precision that you're talking about, those are two very different forms of counseling that are going to end up having very different results and experiences. Sure. You know, the, the kind I'm talking about was really all the, all there was that was available at the beginning of all this. And so the, it, part of it's cultural too. Part of it's like, uh, we want, I want the, I want the cure and I want it now. Right. Like who's the, what's the Veruca salt from Willy Wonka. Right. Yeah. Um, and and it, even better if you can give it to me in pill form that's the best right because then i don't have to really do anything um so yes it's very different and there's so there's different kinds of discourses right like if if somebody comes in and they're prepared for the kind of work i'm talking about then fine let's go right to it but some people aren't and so you know, as the clinician, understanding what kind of discourse you're functioning in is important. And maybe you need to be in sort of a university discourse type of thing for a while with the client to get them engaged and feel like they have some tangible thing, which ultimately only ends up in their realization, their self-realization that they don't know what the hell they're doing, right? And, and none of this stuff, you know, it might come about where you they're in there, they, it seems clear that they need some kind of homework. They're asking for some kind of thing. And so you provide that for a while. And at some point, they need to come to the realization that they're not actually doing anything with those things. And that might take them a while. But as the clinician, knowing like, look, I'm in a university discourse, I'm teaching this person how to breathe, or I'm teaching this person about anxiety, or whatever it might be, um, the end result of an education is a divided subject where you, you just realize you don't know anything, really. That's the end of an education, is you realize, like, I know a handful of things and ultimately I, I, don't, I still don't know. And then you can move into a different kind of discourse, which is, which is one of what I was talking about earlier, where... I'm, I'm constantly questioning like the things that I don't know and the knots where I get stuck in that unknowing. And for me, being able to approach that with curiosity and being comfortable in the unknown often feels like a great privilege. Like I, I've worked through a lot to get to the point where I can confidently and securely say, I don't know something. Yeah. And so hearing someone asking, asking for worksheets, asking for what can I do, um, I appreciate the enthusiasm towards wanting to put in the work. And then also, what are those demands actually? Yeah. Are, are these demands actually asking for me to go print out a PDF for them to take home and, and put on yeah. the pile of their junk mail or... Well, it's a demand. I mean, so there's a few things, I think. There, there's a demand for uh you know prove like look i'm coming here i'm paying you you're sitting in this seat you know presumably 
you know, you know more than me and you can heal me, right? You're the one that knows. I don't know. But I can't say I don't know. So I'm going to make you prove like you're where you're sitting, like prove yourself. And so some of the demands can be like that. And if it becomes clear, that's what it is, like prove it, just keep proving it. Then you, you know, you'd want to sidestep that to some degree, right? You don't, you don't want to get in a position of just continually proving yourself to this other person, right? Um, it could be, there's also potentially like a demand for love. I mean, any, any demand has a, you know, an underlying demand for love. It's like, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to state my demand, which is in a way like, you know, recognition, I'm demanding recognition, hear me speak to you. And then like respond to that, give me a yes or a no, or give me the thing that I'm asking for. But beyond that, like if I, if I respond to every demand you have, like I want worksheets, I want a car, I want, and I give you every possible material, I give you all of my attention and every possible material answer, um, it, it, it will never satisfy because there's a remainder and it, the remainder is a demand for love, like love me. Um, and that's a hard place to get to the realization of, but it, you know, it's possible. And then when a person recognizes that, then the demand stops so much. Like you, I don't need you to provide me with your undivided attention. I don't need you to provide me with worksheets or cars or whatever it might be. Um, I need you to be present and hear me. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I was, <laughs> um, it just brings it back to uh, when that realization happens. And also thank you for bringing up the power structure that can so innately happen in a counseling session where we're viewed as an authority figure um and yeah. just what a, a dance that can become if it's acknowledged right away or what projections happen yeah. um, and then it also just got me thinking of once those demands are recognized for what they are the relationship that has on that integration process. Then going back into the culture I grew up in of a very capitalistic society, it would be much harder for me to be able to voice that like, hey, you know what I actually need is some attention. What I actually need is some communication is much yeah. harder than um, material things in, in yeah. this culture. Right. And I think, I mean, it's another route of talking about, like when I said earlier, like when the, when the progress is done and the person has created a new, the fantasy of all the power dynamics and the whole role of a therapist or analyst and the whole thing, the fantasy of that is sort of surpassed. And then that's, that's what I said, like, I don't, like, thank you on, on some very extremely deep and real level. Talking as the clinician to the, or talking as the client to the clinician, on some deep and fundamental level, I love you more than maybe anybody else I've ever interacted with, and I don't need you anymore, right? I see, I'm past the fantasy of you having some, uh, some knowledge beyond you know, mine, I, I, I go past the fantasy of you being able to fix me and all of that stuff that people carry into an analysis or a therapy session dissipates. 
and the person is able to then walk out and and have a full understanding or a relatively full understanding of their life and they've made some choices about that along the way and they're able to step away from that with deep love and respect and also a, a clear like i don't i don't need to do this with you anymore thank you but goodbye and move on to to create something past that all right yeah, that feels there's a there's a tremendous amount of of transference that goes on when a person comes into therapy. And unfortunately, a lot of therapies these days don't specifically work on uh, addressing that transference, right? Like what some people come to therapy and the power and the direction and everything of the session is totally handed over to the clinician and it never it never stops being there. And I think some clinicians get off on that to a certain extent. Um, and, it, you know, it, and if they haven't ever given it thought, they don't, you know, it is what it is. That's how therapy is, right? Um, maybe they've never been to therapy where they really took a look at what, what am I, what do I think this other human being is going to do? Really? I mean, there, it's funny because we do, as clinicians, we have some kind of knowledge, right? We've learned some things, we've read some things, we've thought about ourselves, hopefully we've worked on ourselves, and we have some knowledge in that way, right? But when, an, when another human being is in front of you, they're, they're literally an enigma, and will remain so until they've gone through an entire therapy, and then you might have a sense of them but you know anyway <laughs> and that that sense of them is hopefully ever evolving the, yeah. the when i feel like i have a finger hold or foothold on a sense of them it's also our job to kind of shake up that sediment of the of that same sense yeah well, the, they'll, the, the client will shake it up um, if they're working, right? If they're there actually doing it, they will shake it up. And that's how you know, talking about progress, that's how you know you're starting to reach the end. When you thought you knew what they were doing or you thought you knew what was happening, you, saw, you thought you saw one of those knots or loops, but then they come in and it's totally different. Yeah, we love a good plot twist. <laughs> in a character development yeah. <laughs> and the power of having someone witness that yeah i mean the ability to say and do and, and explore yourself like in front of another person even though that person it probably seems like a complete enigma or just kind of an empty there's a there's a painting by i can't remember the painter but he painted a painted a lot you ever seen the the there's a painting of a pipe suit jacket and a hat and like clouds and nothing in, internal to it right i want to say it's renee marguerite yes that's who it is that's who it is marguerite yeah but anyway he has one and it's like it's basically like a guy i think there's like a little bird cage in his chest and then like clouds and a yeah Mm -hmm. and he's like sitting on some rocks by the ocean he's got like a cane mm -hmm. person there 
and in a lot of ways, like that's kind of, to me, like where, where you want to be, right? Like if I start inserting myself too much to where like I become a more like full entity, I start to intrude on, on that person's separate space. I mean, it's interesting. It's a humanities field about humans working with humans. <laughs> how bizarre, in my opinion. Yeah, it is bizarre. How do you, how do you feel about your experience thus far in, in your future? Like, what are you thinking? Um, I'm thankful for my experience and I'm really thankful for these conversations that I've had because I can um, zoom out really easily. I get really meta with it. And so, for example, working at the residential treatment center, I got really discouraged and frustrated with just our society and the way things are ran and the fact that mental health is tied into health care, which is severely a sick system, I think, in America and, and seeing how it impacts overall wellness. And so I don't want to detach from that because I feel like it's both my professional and personal responsibility to work within it and provide as quality care as I can. Um, it's just kind of like the how and um, how I'm going to go about that and also sustain like the zest that I have and the energy that I have without being really, really cynical because I can get very critical on the system and pretty, yeah, yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot to wade through and that's why why not speak to many people who have been doing it longer than I and yeah. And just hear perspectives, but yeah, and it, I mean, like anything, you, I imagine you'll you'll figure out your way of navigating it too. I think, um, in my mind, my ideal or my my hope or dream would be that some like you, you you've noted it right. Like we're all in our own kind of little world, unfortunately, a lot of the time. Um, and I, I wish I, I wish we were better at organizing. Um, I think we're all, we're all a bit insecure, frankly, we, we recognize the things we don't know, at least to some extent, we recognize the tenuous, sort of very strange place that we occupy. Um, it feels under threat often. Um, and particularly in the world we live in with the pressures and the, the things that are, um, I, I feel like we, we are, as a, as a field generally, we're kind of cowed to it. Um, and we either, we either like submit fully and, you know, we can make a good living and we can proliferate mountains of bullshit, or we could get together and say, you know what, we're, we're not just as a field, we're not going to do this anymore. We're not going to sign off on this anymore. I don't care pharmaceutical company. If you pay us a million dollars to rewrite the DSM with more diagnoses, we're not going to do that. I think if we could organize and stand up together and just be like, no, nah, we're done. We're done with that. Right. There would be a few scabs that would hang around. But I think what would happen is like the general populace would say, well, I'm going to go see those people because they know what they're talking about, at least somewhat. Um, 
and I may not be able to pay them with insurance, but I have some chickens, so I'll bring eggs or something, you know, like that to me feels like the, the, the only, the only real solution to the problem aside from that, I guess, you know, like I said, try to survive, um, <laughs> do, do what you can. Yeah. 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 Great message. I like that. that. The unity. Yeah. Yeah. And, and everyone has something to offer. And sure. right now, uh, it varies state to state, city to city, setting to setting. And, and what a complicated thing to try and navigate when we yeah. all pretty much have a baseline of intentions for the most part. Yeah. Well, here's the problem. We, we can't even organize ourselves to get like a recognized set of standards for our license in every state. So <laughs> right. We're, we're, we have a lot of work to do. This is true. This is yeah. true. Maybe we should start like the, uh, the anarchist, socialist, communist, therapeutic wing or something and start trying to get people organized. I know there's a lot of people out there that are not thrilled with the way that things are. And everybody's trying to kind of like eke out their survival and do the best they can for their clients. But um, at a certain point, I think every we all have to sit with and reflect on like what what is the example and what is the model of functioning that we're presenting with that you know mm -hmm. is the goal to actually uh eke out survival or is it to to have some change um i think the hope is that you know a proper therapy carried to to completion adds one more person to the pool that's ready to have some kind of change one way or another. Um, but what are we doing as the clinicians? I guess we're holding that space sacred and safe and creating it, uh, which is a thing. Somebody has to do that, but I think we could do better. Here's to the Sacred Therapeutic Alliance Transformation and unity. And here's to Dr. Paul Miller King for being a guest on this episode. And of course, to you, the listener, for sticking with us. Hope you tune in next episode.